You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey y'all, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm so glad that you have joined us this morning. Well, I'm going to kick off the message with a question for you. Here you go. Do you, uh, do you think Jesus was smart? I mean, like, like when you think of the, you know, the, the intellectual giants that have ever lived, the great, the great thinkers, the great teachers, does Jesus make your list? And I, you know, I know that we're in a worship gathering, and so we all know what the answer should be, right? We all say yes. I heard that earlier, right? Yeah, so we say, yeah, 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 for sure. But honestly, is that really like a core way that you think about Jesus? Man, he's just so smart. He's just brilliant. See, I think most people in the world today, they, they, they think of Jesus primarily as like this, this great person or maybe just an idea that, that inspires sacrificial love or, or loving people, right? And then others think about Jesus, they think about him as this great revolutionary, right, who stood up to the, uh, the oppression of Rome and, and really inspires us to this day to stand up to the man, to resist, you know, all that, that kind of stuff, right? Like that's what Jesus is for some people. For many in the church today, especially the evangelical church today, Jesus is primarily viewed through the lens of, of coming to die for us so that we could be forgiven and, re, and re reconciled to God, right? And though that is completely true, what I feel happens is that that glorious truth that Jesus is God the Son who came and lived, died for us, that we could be reconciled to God, that glorious truth often overshadows the truth that Jesus also came as our rabbi. And not just any rabbi, but as like the most brilliant and wise and provocative and, and just spiritual, like just a spiritual master kind of rabbi. Like if, you, if you're familiar, I've shared this before in the past, but like out of the uh, 90 or so times that Jesus is addressed in the gospel accounts, about 60 of those times, he's addressed as rabbi or teacher. And, and for those who aren't familiar with that word, rabbi is, is a Hebrew uh, word that specifically or literally means master. That rabbis were the spiritual masters of Israel. See, not, not only were they experts, uh, expert teachers of God's word, but they were also these just like magnetic examples of what it looks like to spend life with God. And every rabbi had what was called his yoke. Are y'all familiar with that term? And the yoke is a Hebrew idiom for his set of teachings, or the rabbi's set of teachings, specifically for his reading of scripture and his take on how to, listen, how to thrive as a human in God's good world. And friends, Jesus 
was a rabbi, but he wasn't any ordinary rabbi. The, uh, this is highlighted in the gospel accounts whenever they would say things like this, like I think about in the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us, the crowds were astounded at, or astonished at his teaching. In the gospel, Lucas says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. In the gospel, Mark, we're told that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. If you keep reading the gospels, you see that often uh, the crowds would respond by saying things like, uh, where did this man get all this wisdom? <laughs> and then they would say, hey, no one ever spoke the way that this man does. Friends, Midtown is uh, built on the belief that Jesus is our Redeemer and our brilliant rabbi. That Jesus did come to save us from our sins. Absolutely, hallelujah, praise God. He came as our Redeemer and he came as our brilliant rabbi. And as our brilliant rabbi, he teaches us the best way to live, that through his way of life and his teachings, we learn how to thrive as a human being in God's good world, that in him, in Jesus, is life, and from his life, we, live the, we learn the best way to live. See, uh, this is why kind of all as a little bit of a backdrop before we begin this fasting practice. I begin this way because this, this is why three times a year with our church, we've already mentioned this this morning, but three times a year we take a practice from Jesus' life and encourage each other to adopt it as our own. We do this to help each other practice the way of Jesus so that we will live as apprentices or his disciples And to be a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus is is to be someone whose entire life is organized around three basic goals. Many of y'all are familiar with these goals, right? They are, one, to be with Jesus, two, to become like Jesus, and three, to do as Jesus did. See, to put another way, to apprentice under Jesus is to adopt his overall lifestyle and to arrange our life around the practices and the way of Jesus in order to open your whole life to God so that he can transform you from the inside out, ultimately forming you, forming you into a person who is marked by the love and the joy and the peace of Jesus himself. See, that's the explanation for why we are kicking off this fasting practice today. And just to be, you know, upfront with you guys, the hope of this practice and this four-part teaching series that goes along with it, the hope of all that is that you will adopt the practice of fasting regularly and that you would start that over the next four weeks, but perhaps continue it for the rest of your lives. (laughs) 
which I realize, I know, I know, I know. I know that that sounds a little extreme to many of y'all and perhaps just weird or, or even cultish, right? Like, I mean, who fasts, right? Like, who does that? Very few people do that. It's, uh, it, it's interesting that when it comes to fasting today, this, is, this has been a practice that's been pretty much lost on the Western church. That you're much more likely to hear about fasting from a fitness guru, right? Or a wellness expert, or a Buddhist, or a Muslim than from a Christian. Which is really weird. Because Jesus fasted. And he taught on fasting. I mean, think about it. How did Jesus begin his ministry? A 40-day fast. I mean, that's hardcore fasting, right? A 40-day fast. We'll talk more about that next week. But Jesus fasted, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he taught on fasting. In fact, as we look at fasting, we should probably start with what Jesus had to say about it. So if you want, turn to Matthew 6 in your Bible, or I'll have the words up here on the screen. You can follow along this way. But Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 16. Here's what he says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, like do something with your hair, you know? Wash your face. See that it will not be, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen, and your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, real quick, let me, let me just make three observations from Jesus' teaching on fasting, okay? First observation is this. Jesus assumes that his apprentices will fast. Did you pick up on that, how he begins verse 16? Uh, when you fast, not if you fast, Right? Now, that, that might seem like quite the assumption for Jesus to make in modern day times. But what's interesting is in Jesus' first century world, most Jews and all Pharisees fasted uh, twice a week, like two times a week. <laughs> they would fast every Monday and every Thursday. See, fasting was one of the core spiritual practices of that day to the point that the one time that Jesus actually teaches on spiritual practices, which is found here in the first half of Matthew chapter 6, he teaches on giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, which is really interesting. I mean, he teaches, most scholars believe he teaches on those three specifically because they were the most widely practiced of the spiritual disciplines in that day. Man, that's really changed, hasn't it? Like if someone were to ask you, hey, what, what do you think are the most widely practiced spiritual disciplines in our day? What would you say? Eating. <laughs> the opposite of fasting. Nice. I like it. Feasting. We're all about that. Absolutely. No, we would probably say like attending a worship service. That's probably pretty high up there. Uh, maybe reading your Bible. Um, pray, praying. I think praying would still make the list. That's good. We got one of the three, which Jesus would highlight. But uh, yeah, maybe even giving to the poor. That would, that would be great if that made your list. But honestly, what, fasting probably wouldn't show up in our top 10 list, right? I mean, we're just not, it just left off altogether. 
But Jesus assumes that his apprentices, his disciples, would fast. That's the first observation. Okay, second observation here. Notice that Jesus assumes we'll be tempted to fast for messed up reasons. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel seen by Jesus when he says this, right? Like he just assumes like we're going to be tempted to, to, to fast for all kinds of wonky reasons. We're going to do it to try to show off, to be seen. You know, we want people to think, oh, how godly that person is. Or look at me, they're really devout, right? And so like you do it to, to, to please others or to impress others or to make you feel good or try to get something out of it instead of just communing with God, he assumes that that's going to be a temptation at play. But, but notice, he doesn't say as a result of that temptation, don't fast, don't worry about it. He just says, no, no, fast, but don't do it for those reasons. Okay, third observation. Jesus gives us a promise here, doesn't he? That he ends his teaching on fasting with a promise. He says that when you fast for the Father... He will see you and reward you. Meaning that there's a gift from God the Father waiting for you on the other side of fasting. Jesus promises that. And yet, most of Jesus' followers today don't fast. My guess is, and maybe I'm wrong, but most of us, don't fast. And so my question is, what if, friends, what if we're missing out on one of the most important of all the practices of Jesus? And what if we're missing out on one of the most important practices of all? And I say that because this practice of fasting, <laughs> it was around for a very long time before it came out of style, if you will. Like, this is something that followers of Christ have held on to and said, like, this is a very important way that we follow Jesus for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Just quick, real quick history lesson here. But after Jesus' death and resurrection and then eventual ascension to back to the right hand of the Father, Jesus' followers continued fasting. Think about if you read into the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, you see that the apostle Paul fasted on a number of occasions with various churches in the first century. That The churches that he was planting or helped get started or he was a part of, they fasted together. And that practice continued into the early church, into the first and second, third, and on and on centuries. Um, the all the way up until huh, what well, it seems like around the 1700s. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the Didache, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's one of the uh, oldest Christian writings. It's, many think it's actually the oldest Christian writing outside of the New Testament. It dates back to around 100 AD. Like, and in it, the, it, there's a command given for Jesus' followers to fast twice a week on Wednesdays, and on Fridays. So this twice-a-week fasting thing, it continued for a long time. Like I said, about 1700s. And we say about the 1700s because in the 1700s, 1770, John Wesley, who, uh, you know, one of the most important figures in, in the, the Western church, uh, just 
fantastic leader, uh, wrote some people, and here's what he said. Let me just quote him. He says, I fear that there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, <laughs> little passive-aggressive, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in the month. The audacity, right? (laughs) Now, my point in bringing all that up is just to show you that for a very, very long time, fasting was the standard practice, a standard practice of Jesus' followers. That basically, if you were serious about your apprenticeship to Jesus, then you fasted regularly and frequently. Why do you think that changed? Like how, do, how do Jesus' followers go from fasting twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, to not fasting at all or hardly at all? What, what changed? Capitalism. <laughs> I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> However, perhaps related to that, I would say that... Um, One thing that has uh, uh, caused that to change, perhaps, and I think there are several factors, but one of them being that um, uh, food is better now. (laughs) I mean, most of us, like like most of us are going to watch the Super Bowl tonight, right? Go Kansas City. That's where I'm planting my flag. Woo, there we go. Jen and Matt, that's for y'all. most of us are going to watch Super Bowl tonight. What are we going to do? We're going to eat awesome food, pizza and wings and nachos, or if you're at Blake's place, ribs. Like, I mean, there's great food. We're going to chow down on that. And even though we're starting a season of fasting as a church, you, you, we're going to eat well tonight. Tonight's a night of feasting, right? And so we're going to, we're going to have a good time. We're going to eat this food, and it's going to be delicious. It's harder to fast in a world where pizza exists, friends. They weren't struggling with that in the first century, right? And, and just to push it a little bit more, like not only does pizza exist, but you don't even have to make it. You just think about wanting it and you could get someone to drive it to you. You know, I mean, that's, that's another amazing thing now, but it's, a, I think, a factor that plays into why fasting might be harder. Specifically, when, it, when you think about how you know, they weren't door dashing food back in the first century or 18th century, and that we live in such an uh, instant gratification, you know, do what feels good culture, where the idea of denying yourself something that you, fun- that you want feels so foreign to you that it really does almost seem cultish. That's the culture that we're formed by today. That works against fasting, right? But with those in mind, I'll add one more idea. And I think that this is actually the most foundational or fundamental reason why many of Jesus' followers quit fasting or don't fast regularly. And that reason being, we just don't get it. We just don't get it. I mean, specifically, we don't get what not eating has to do with our spiritual lives. And friends, if we're not sure 
that not eating has uh, any bearing on our spiritual lives, then it follows that we would never fast. I mean, who wants to go without pint house or any other food for a spiritual purpose if we're not convinced that what we do with our bodies actually serves a spiritual purpose? See, I just think overall we lack clarity around the what of fasting and the why of fasting. So kind of kicking off this series, I want to just really quickly run through some basics when it comes to fasting, okay? Just to bring some clarity, hopefully, here. So first, basic, let me just answer some basic questions. First question being, what is fasting? Exactly, like what is it? Well, fasting is, at its most basic, not eating food. Not eating food. In the Bible, there are two words that are used to speak of fasting. One is the Hebrew word zom, which literally means not to eat. And the other is a, a Greek word, which is nestul, and that means to abstain from food. So throughout the Bible, the core idea of fasting has to do with not eating, which just kind of as a quick aside, that means that technically, like going without something like social media or entertainment or something like that, that's not fasting. And it's kind of splitting hairs there, but technically... Fasting is about abstaining from food. These other things, if you're going to go without something else, then the term that we use for that is sacrificing. Like you're, you're choosing to abstain from a good or neutral thing for a period of time in order to make more time to spend with God. And that's a different practice, but a, a very good practice that we wholeheartedly encourage and would even recommend that you would do along with this time of fasting as a church, that you would choose some things or a thing to, 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 to go without for a period to make more time to spend with Jesus during this fast. But again, technically, that's sacrificing. That's not fasting because fasting is abstaining from food. Okay, second question. How long are you supposed to fast? Well, friends, there is no set time. No set time. I mean, uh, traditionally speaking, the most common fast was from waking up to sundown. You would fast through breakfast and lunch and then eat a, eat a you know, light dinner in the, in the evening. But uh, the practices of the, um, uh, but the, I'm sorry, the examples within uh, the scriptures, you see that there are all kinds of different fasts. There's, there's two-day fasts and three-day fasts and seven-day and 21-day and 40-day fasts. So it really, there's no standard given to us of how long you're supposed to fast. There's a lot of freedom there. Third question, when are you supposed to fast? And again, there's a lot of freedom for you here too. It's up to you when, when you do it, like what day of the week you do it. And the reason why there's a lot of freedom there is because there's no command given in the New Testament to choose followers about the day you're supposed to fast. If anything, there's a day which you're not supposed to fast, which would be your Sabbath. For your Sabbath is a day for feasting, not for fasting. But there's no other day that's specifically given to when you should fast. Now, traditionally speaking, the early church, and like I said, they would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. 
And, and it is worth calling out that when it comes to when, you see in Scripture there, and in just the tr- history of the church that there is uh, a way to think about fasting when it comes to like a rhythm and when fasting is done in a response. Again, the, the rhythm would be the example of fasting every Wednesday and Friday. A response, which is what you actually see much more in Scripture, is when the people of God would, in response to either like a great national crisis or personal sin or grieving the loss or the death of someone, they would fast in response to that. All that to say that when it comes to when to fast, there is no set time, but you might be helped by thinking fasting as rhythm, fasting also as response. Okay, fourth question. Do we fast in community or alone? Is anyone ever allowed to know that you're fasting? And if not, then what are we doing? Trying to call everybody to fast, right? So um, there's confusion around this this question because many people misread Jesus's warnings in Matthew 6 about fasting. And they conclude that Jesus is saying that no one should ever know you're fasting. But that, friends, wasn't Jesus's point. See, Jesus wasn't saying that fasting in community is wrong, but that fasting as, you know, virtue signaling or performance or to impress others is wrong. See, Scripture is full of examples of the people of God fasting together. Again, I already referenced Acts 13, and you have the church of Antioch, all fasting together. And in the Old Testament, fasts were commanded for the entire nation of Israel to do together. So fasting in Scripture can be done alone or can be done in community. Again, a lot of freedom here when it comes to fasting. All right, final, final question for us. This is the big one, which is, uh, why do we fast? I say again that this is the big one because this is where we lack clarity. We just don't understand how not eating serves a spiritual purpose. And so during this teaching series that will accompany our fasting practice, what we're going to do is we're going to drill down on four reasons for why to fast. Let me just preview them for you real quickly. The first is we fast to offer ourselves to Jesus. Second, we, we fast to grow in holiness. Third, we fast to amplify our prayers. And fourth, we fast to stand with the poor. We're going to get into all four of those throughout the next few, week, few weeks. But for the remainder of this message, what I want to do is just highlight the most central reason for fasting, which is that first one, to offer ourselves to Jesus. Or you could say to offer your whole self to Jesus, which, friends, includes your body. See, one of the big reasons why fasting doesn't make a lot of sense for us today is because we have become influenced by uh, Greek thought and later the Enlightenment to think of our bodies as just containers for our real self. Just our, our real self being our spirit or our mind or our soul. And as a result, we lack clarity on how not feeding our body has anything to do with our spirituality or our soul. But friends, that lack of clarity is the result of an unbiblical view of the body and what it means to be a human. 
uh, there's this like really great uh, Bible project video that some of our college students watched, Caroline was telling me about, uh, and I watched it this week. And man, I just thought it highlighted this so well. I was going to try to sum it up for you, and then I thought, I can't do it justice. And so I, I just want to play it for you and it, watch this, and then in a minute, I'll, I'll try to connect uh, what it's saying uh, to fasting. Take a look. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nephesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost-in-the-machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh. And if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death, waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves and it gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. By using nephesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body offer thanks to God. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nephesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. It's interesting, huh? I think that's really helpful. I love their, I love, uh, their line in there where he says, to, to love God with all your nephesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. See, the, friends, that's the call of the Shema. 
the great commandment, the one that Jesus in the New Testament actually labeled. That's the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your nephesh. Like it's a big deal to God that we would love him with all that we are. And then in the uh, New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on that theme when he writes famously in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your what? Bodies, right? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you notice uh, Paul's word choice there, bodies. The word in the Greek is soma where we get our English word somatic. And it, it means your whole person. See, I, I don't know about y'all, but I, most likely if you grew up in church, then you probably grew up hearing a lot about the idea of giving your heart to Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing, absolutely. But that, God doesn't just call for our heart or our emotions, or our our desires, but actually for all that we are. See, all throughout Scripture, we're told that you do not have a body, you are a body. Or to be more precise, your body is an essential part of who you are. To use the theologian Scott McKnight's term, we are an embodied spirit. That's well put, an embodied spirit. Which means that the real you is an, is an integrated whole of body and spirit. This is why fasting is such an important practice from the life of Jesus. I like how uh, pastor author John Mark Comer puts it. He, he says this, Fasting is a psychosomatic act in the true sense of the word that's built around a biblical theology of your soul as your whole person, which includes all of your body, your brain, your nervous system, and your stomach. See, for when we fast, friends, we engage in a form of worship that involves and offers up to God all that we are. And according to Romans 12, verse 1, we are to do that in view of God's mercy. In view of what God has done for us, and the person of Jesus. When Jesus came in a body, doctrine we call the incarnation, to save our bodies, a doctrine we call the resurrection, through the sufferings and ultimately the death of his body. See, God's mercy was ultimately expressed in the body of Jesus. And now, fittingly, Our worship of Jesus is expressed in and through our bodies. Previously, I mentioned that the common practice in Jesus' day was to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, especially that's what the Pharisees held to. And then I also mentioned that the early church uh, continued that Jewish practice of fasting twice a week until sundown. Uh, but they changed the days to Wednesdays and Fridays, right? Did you catch that? Did you catch that? But I, I, let me tell you why they made that change. It's really interesting. I, I find it moving. 
See, they made that change because Wednesday was the day that Jesus was betrayed. And Friday was the day that Jesus was crucified. So the early disciples changed the days of fast as a way to get in touch on a bodily level with what the Apostle Paul called participating in the sufferings of Christ. See, they fasted to intentionally engage their whole self in the worship of Jesus in view of his mercy. Fasting is, friends, at its core, a practice practice that involves your entire self in the worship of Jesus. That's why Scott McKnight, to reference him again, calls fasting body talk, body talk. Because it's a way of praying with your entire body. So, as we'll see in this series, there are a number of reasons for why to fast. But this is the primary one. Hear this. It's because we fast not to get something from Jesus, but to give something to Jesus. What Paul calls our worship, our love, and our affection, and our devotion. We fast because it is a tangible way to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to our God, who is worthy of our worship and our love. So, as a way to offer our bodies and all that we are to Jesus in love, I want to invite you to begin this fasting practice with us, all right? Yeah? (laughs) Now, my invitation for you, just to let you know, is not for you to begin fasting twice a week, okay? Even though that's, we've already talked about that, but, you know, when it comes to fasting, especially if this is a new practice for you, don't try to bite off more than you can chew. That's a fasting pun. All right. But seriously, the invitation here is to pick one day this week to fast through through breakfast and lunch, and then to break your fast at sundown with dinner. And in this this fasting practice guide, friends, which I really encourage you to pick up if you don't have, if you do have it, like use this. We put a lot of time and effort into it, and we think that it's going to be really helpful. On it, you'll see that there's a page about the practice, and it's going to lay out some stuff for you to consider about when to fast this week. But ultimately, it's up to you when you do it. And really, it's up to you if you do it. And I mean that. See, for though it's true that Jesus assumed his disciples would fast, it is also true that he never commanded us to fast. Neither do any of the apostles in the New Testament. They all fasted, but they never commanded others to do so. And this is just an invitation. It's an invitation to practice the way of Jesus, our Redeemer and our brilliant Rabbi, who fasted and then said, Come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and become like me. Come and do what I did. Okay? But that's an invitation. That's not a command. Which means if you think this whole idea of fasting is ridiculous, that's fine. 
We love you, and we're glad. Feel free to come and stick around for the next three weeks and just laugh at us for wanting to try to do this practice. That's, it's, 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 that's fine. You don't need to do this, friends. Listen, you don't need to do this to get God to love you or accept you or to get us to love you or accept you. And that means, one of the things that means, and I want to be real clear here, is that if you are not ready to fast, especially due to body image issues or an unhealthy relationship to food or just poor health, please feel no pressure to do this. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 6, you aren't to do it for others. You aren't to do it to impress others. So if you're not ready, then don't do it. Or if it'd be unhealthy for you, spiritually or physically, then please, by all means, sit this one out, okay? But I will add, and just I hope you can hear this just as as a pastor's heart for you, that if that is where you are, I would just encourage you to at least consider as kind of a next step towards health to perhaps get with a Christian therapist or a life coach or a, a doctor to start to explore why you feel you couldn't or you shouldn't fast with us. And, and just use that time. Just explore what might, what, where you might need some healing or in your relationship with food or your, your body. In addition, on that note, on our website at midtownaustin.org backslash fasting, or you can find it on the front page, uh, we have a podcast conversation regarding fasting and eating disorders and body image and Jesus' call to health and wholeness that could be a really helpful resource to you. And we just put that on there to, to try to be an aid to help us all towards greater health. All right. So ultimately, though, just to reiterate, this is entirely invitational. And the reason it's invitational is because of what we remember when we partake in communion. And so I want to invite our servers to begin passing out the communion elements. And as I do that, friends, let me just try to connect a dot here, connect a couple dots here. Uh, Communion is like fasting, is in that it integrates both the physical and the spiritual in order to help us remember that Jesus laid down his life on our behalf, so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. See, it's because of what he's done for us that we don't have to do anything to earn his love or his acceptance. Friends, we have it in full in Christ. Praise God. And now we are invited in view of his mercy, not to earn his mercy, in view of his mercy to practice the way of Jesus, not to get something from God, but to offer our whole selves to him. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.